We'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're continuing our walk through several scenes from the life of Jesus and the apostles and how they engaged with unbelief around them, seeking to glean for ourselves uh, principles and tools and equipping that we might be more faithful ourselves and effective as we bear witness to Christ and his kingdom. While you're turning to Acts 17, I'm going to read for you a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't need to turn over there, but just to set the tone. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The foolishness of the message from the perspective of the world is the very thing that God uses to draw people to himself, this message about a crucified Christ. And he goes down in verse 22 to say, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Doesn't quite scratch the itch of any audience. This is God's wisdom contra the wisdom of man. And this is the very thing that Paul boasts in. He boasts in the foolishness of this gospel from the perspective of the world which seeks wisdom in different places and perhaps even just in everybody's own sense of what's right and wrong. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul finds himself right in the epicenter of so-called wisdom. He is in Athens, Greece, the sort of center of culture and philosophy in the Greco-Roman world. Athens is known far and wide uh, in these ways as a cultural center point, both because of uh, rampant pagan idolatry, and there were enormous temples to false gods that were very visible and obvious around Athens, and the sort of endless philosophizing, people seeking wisdom, people asking questions about life and, and the world and the nature of reality and all these things. In fact, you may have read that Socrates uh, traveled around Athens asking his, his wisdom questions. Why are things this way, right? And in Acts 17... Paul finds himself in that place, in the cultural epicenter of pagan idolatry and philosophy. And in that environment, he intentionally and explicitly posits the Christian gospel as the answer to the mysteries of Greek philosophy. Therein lie some lessons for us in how we may engage the world's ideologies and false narratives in our own day. So in Acts 17, just to give you a little bit of context, this is during Paul's second missionary journey, and he was in Berea with his partners, Timothy and Silas, and uh, he left in a hurry because he was in danger, because Paul's opponents were seeking to kill him. And so his companions sort of just whisked him away and sent him out of town. And so he's arrived in Athens uh, ahead of his companions. And so basically he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to catch up with him so they can continue their journey together from 
Athens. And so while he's waiting in Athens, we read this scene that takes place in the middle of Acts 17. So there's kind of two paragraphs. We'll read it in that way. And then from these two paragraphs of this story in Paul's speech, uh, we will draw four principles for our own efforts at uh, bearing witness to the kingdom. So look at Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. I'll read the first paragraph of the story. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We'll stop there for now. You can tell these people like to hear themselves talk. They gather just to share ideas, and maybe any one idea is as good as another. This is, and they're interested in what Paul has to say. This seems new to us. We want to know more about it. And Paul is, of course, happy to oblige. Now, here's the first principle I'll draw from what we see right there, and then I'll expand on it. The first principle is this. Evangelism is fueled by the glory of God. Evangelism is fueled by the glory of God. You may notice in verse 16, as this begins, it says, while Paul was waiting for them, his companions, his fellow ministers to come along, while he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. This is not the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's own spirit. This is his heart and his conscience burdened and bothered by the idolatry that he sees among the city of Athens. And of course, he's going to launch into a brilliant sermon, a brilliant speech to this crowd and to the Areopagus. But what starts it, what propels his evangelistic message is a burning passion for the honor of God's name. He begins by observing the idolatry in the city and his spirit is provoked and in that sense of indignation and provocation he is compelled to speak and to point people toward the true god and his gospel evangelism is fueled by the glory of god i wonder when is the last time that your spirit was provoked on god's behalf by observing idolatry in the culture around you does your heart similarly burn with passion for the glory and honor of God? When you're offended, is it for God's sake or your own? When people in our culture or on TV shows and movies that you watch where Christians always look like idiots, are you offended by that because you're being belittled 
or because the name of God is being demeaned and besmirched among his image bearers? Whose honor are you seeking to defend with your indignation? This is good questions for us to ask and reflect on for ourselves. For Paul, what provoked his spirit was a sense of the glory and honor of God. And these people are missing it. These people are twisting God's creation into idolatry. And so I glean from this that faithful witness to the kingdom must always begin with love for God and passion for his glory such that when we see him belittled or demeaned in our world, our spirits are provoked. Now, that doesn't mean we are provoked to attack people and to regard people as our enemies, but our spirit is, provo- is provoked to tell the truth and to point them to deeper, bigger, eternal realities for the sake of the glory of God. Evangelism is fueled by the glory of God. So that's the first thing. He's seen the idols in the city. His spirit is provoked within him. And, within him. and so, verse 17 tells us, begins with the word so. Why? Because of the prov- provocation of his spirit. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So Paul enters intentionally two kinds of spaces in Athens. He enters the religious spaces where the Jews and those who are devout would be gathering, and he goes about in the marketplace where, and, and talks with whoever happens to be there. And so here's the second principle. We ought to be intentionally present in religious and secular spaces. We should be intentionally present in religious and secular spaces. Paul wasn't invited yet to speak to a group. At this point, he's just moving about the city. And he's intentionally going to where people gather, both religious people and non-religious people in the marketplace. He puts himself in those contexts, in those situations, so that he might speak with, reason with, it tells us, whoever may happen to be there. And so we ought to take a clue here from Paul and intentionally position ourselves where people gather in religious spaces and in secular spaces. So we need to ask, of course, what are those spaces? And it might take some creativity to figure that out. What are the places where people in our world, in our culture, in our community are naturally collecting, right? Where do people gather? Where might I be around people so that I might seek an opportunity to speak with them about the gospel? I think to some extent, social media plays this role in our community in our in our culture i would say actually it plays that role in a huge way i think the value of social media for this purpose is probably limited but it's not nothing right i think you've probably all seen or perhaps engaged with these kind of arguments on twitter and facebook and whatnot that go back and forth and they just get angrier and angrier and nobody's mind has changed and what good did that do right so there's definitely a sense in which there's a ceiling here of how much good social media can do here but 
If you're on a social media platform, Instagram or whatever else, consider how might I steward my presence there for the sake of the gospel? How might I be a witness for the kingdom in not just the things that I talk about, but even how I present myself and how I engage with others? And so there, there, that's, a, that's one of these probably natural co collecting spaces in our culture. More locally, of course, think about you know, sports clubs and events. Think about just community uh, events and gatherings and even just in your own neighborhood. Do people, uh, is there a way that, that people gather? Are there cookouts, you know, uh, national night, night out or whatever it is where neighbors get together? Any of those kinds of things that you can identify as places where people are gathering, consider how might I make myself intentionally present in those spaces for the purpose of engaging with people about the gospel. So be intentionally present in religious and secular spaces. Well, the people are curious about what Paul has to say about these foreign divinities that he seems to be preaching. And so they invite him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is not a place, it's a group of people. It's basically the town's philosophy council, all right? So these are the wisest of the wise. These are the people who come together and, and uh, philosophize, all right? And so they invite him to come and speak to the sort of leading philosophy group in the town. And, uh, and Paul's speech there to this group of people is brilliant and instructive for us in some ways. So let's look at that speech then this will take verses 22 down through verse 34, the end of the chapter. So I'll, let's read that. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, I want you to remember that language of one man, we'll bookmark it, come back to it later. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed." And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. 
But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So in Paul's strategic, thoughtful presentation of the gospel in these verses, we find a few more principles to help shape our own proclamation. Here's number three on the morning. The gospel can withstand the world's values and ideas. The gospel can withstand the world's values and ideas. I I wonder if at times we feel a little bit sheepish about the Christian message in the world venue where where these ideas and, and narratives and philosophies are being expressed and espoused. I wonder if sometimes we're a little embarrassed to speak up with the Christian gospel. I wonder if we feel like perhaps we're uh, not just outsiders, but perhaps we're going to be looked down upon. Perhaps people think that we're anti-intellectual or that Christianity is silly or some foolish myth. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians, 18, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, it's the foolishness of the message preached that God uses to save sinners. But it's good to remember and to take from Paul's example here that there's no reason to be embarrassed or ashamed about the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in these public spaces when we're talking about philosophy and ideas and values. What is the nature of the world and of reality? And what is a human being? And what is the meaning of life? And all these big questions that people have been asking forever, and each time and culture has its own ways of answering. The gospel can withstand it. We should not be afraid or ashamed to bring the gospel to bear in conversations like this. Look at verse 22. He said, where am I at? Sorry, I was on the wrong page. In verse 22, where he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And so he begins with their own kind of religious uh, bent and and their own uh, devotion, such as it is, to these various gods. Now, he's not accommodating their worship of idols here and just like tacking the Christian God onto it. As long as you've got all these other gods, let's make sure that you have the Christian God too. That's not what he's doing here. He's just using this particular idol. He's found this idol to the unknown God. And he just uses this as a springboard to get to where he really wants to go. Now, it seems that the, the Athenians were so concerned to make sure that they didn't leave any deity out. They have idols and temples and memorials to all of these different gods. And just in case we missed one, we don't want him to be mad at us. So we'll make an, an, an altar to the unknown god whichever God it was that we missed. And so Paul, in sort of a clever play on words here, probably says, I noticed an idol to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you about him. I'm going to preach to you about the God that you missed. And of course, the God that he's going to preach about is the only God that would rule over all of these other non-gods, all of these false gods. They don't even exist before him. And so he uses the unknown God as a starting point, a springboard to proclaim the true God. Brian Vickers said it this way, Paul uses the altar as his inroad, but then proceeds to dismantle their idolatry. 
That's what he does with this unknown God that he proclaims. And his first few sentences do just that, right? He points out the foolishness of worshiping images that come from the art and imagination of man. He says, let me talk to you about this one God. He's the God who made everything. He's the God who exists all on his own. He's the God who does not live in temples that you built for him, as though you could contain him. He's the God who doesn't actually need anything from you, because he's the one that gives you everything. He gives life and breath and everything else to all mankind. Like This is the God that you're missing out. And so just by announcing and proclaiming this one true eternal God... He is knocking down all of the other false gods, all of the other idols. A key strategy that he uses, this is interesting, in dismantling their idolatry is to specifically quote their own philosophers and poets. Did you notice that? Look at verse 28. He says, when he speaks of God, he had just said, he is actually not far from each of us. For, like, and I'll make, to, to advance my argument, I'm going to quote your own poets, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. And then he quotes again, for we are indeed his offspring. Now those particular uh, quotations are from Stoic poets named Epimenides of Crete and Aratus. I'm sure you're all very well versed in their work. But the point is, this culture, this place, these people would have been very familiar with these particular poets and philosophers. And so when Paul quotes their own philosophers and songwriters, as it were, he's identifying with them. I know what you listen to. I know what you think. And actually, there's a way of looking at this where what they're saying kind of supports what I'm telling you about the real, true God. Right? So he uses their own poets and philosophers to subvert the point that they're making right? and to undermine the whole premise of their false gods. So he quotes them and then sort of reinterprets them and, and applies their lines to the truth of the gospel. Right? We are his offspring, indeed, and as the offspring of a divine being, surely we don't have the ability to make a divine being out of gold or silver or stone. We come from him. We're his offspring, just as your own poet has said. Now, Epicureans and Stoics both believed that the gods were distant and impersonal. So these idols and these routines were, were an effort to sort of appease them, just so that these gods, wherever and whoever they were, wouldn't be angry with us. But Paul's portrayal of the true God is very different, isn't it? He gives to all men life and breath. He formed every nation from one man, of course referring to Adam, the first man. He allotted boundaries of their dwelling. Why? So that they would seek him. Verse 27. So that they should seek God. Perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Why is it that God has positioned people where they are and placed them where they live and in the time they live so that they would seek after him and find him? And then Paul has this good news. He's actually not far from each one of us. 
He's actually not far. So pay attention to the values and ideas of the world around you. Read articles or books by secular philosophers and teachers. Listen to the world's music as much as you can handle it. It's getting worse and worse. Not just musically. I mean, the content is just often horrible. But as much as you can and your conscience allows, be familiar with what the people around you are hearing and watching and reading. And what are the values that they're imbibing? Look for touch points in our culture that you can then redirect to a conversation about the gospel. Here's just one, idea, one example of many. One example is the question of identity. This is huge in our culture. Who am I? What is a person? Is my identity determined by what I feel? Does my body have anything to do with or say about my identity? There's this value. In fact, the, the chief value in our culture is self-expression. Right? Discover who you are and then live it out no matter what anybody else says. That's the, that's the message in every kid's movie these days. That's the message of our culture. Whoever you think you are, that's who you are. Nobody has any right to tell you any differently and live it out. And if you lose friends and family and traditions, it doesn't matter. You're being true to who you are. That's, that's the message of our culture when it comes to identity. And so it's all about arriving at self-realization, right? Learning who I am so that I can project that self out into the world. Well, the gospel has something to say about the question of identity. The word of God speaks to who people are. You as a human being, are a bearer of the divine image made for fellowship with him. You are broken by sin and separated from him, but in Jesus Christ, you can become a child of the living God. Who am I? That's who I am. And anyone that we talk to, no matter what they believe, at least part of that is true of them. You bear the divine image. You were made by God in his likeness for fellowship with him. And we just invite people to come the rest of the way. Submit yourself to him and his ways and trust in Christ and you can be a child of the living God. So pay attention to the values and ideas of the world and figure out where the Christian gospel, where the word of God speaks into those issues. The gospel can withstand the world's values and ideas and more specifically, apply the gospel to the world's values and ideas. The fourth and final principle that I think we see from Paul's engagement here is that we ought to warn of judgment and offer redemption in our kingdom witness. We ought to warn of judgment and offer redemption. Now look at what he does in verse 30. So he's just said in verse 29, we shouldn't think that since we're offspring of this one God, that we can make God for ourselves. right? So he that casts aside these things, that these images that come from the art and imagination of man. 
And then he says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. All right, so he's been patient. He's not just smitten everybody right away because of their idolatry, which he could do and would have been righteous to do. But he's waited. He's allowing time. He's been patient. But now, here's the message of verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So in contrast to the one man earlier, the one man from whom all nations of man came, Adam, now he's appointed, he, there's a judgment coming by one man whom he has appointed, namely Jesus Christ, the new Adam, the new representative for humanity. So he intentionally plays these against each other. So he has appointed a day of judgment by a man, by the man Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed for this purpose. And I think just as Paul does boldly here, we must warn others of a judgment to come. Lane read for us earlier from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, which says it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is an indelible rule of the universe that God has fixed. There is a day of judgment coming, and we need to warn people about it. It's not comfortable. It's not popular. It'll probably get laughed out of the room as outdated and ridiculous but it's the truth and we owe it to people i don't know if you're familiar with uh the old i say old they used to be really popular this kind of magician duo pin and teller so pin gillette one of these two guys was is famously an atheist does not believe in god has no religious commitments himself but he did an interview once where he was talking about christian evangelism he calls it proselytizing which is, of course, that's the sort of unfriendly word for sharing your beliefs with somebody. Uh, listen to what this atheist, Pendulette, says about uh, proselytizing. He says, he says, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward... And he says, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And then he says, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So interesting that this atheist guy who does not believe the Christian message at all still sees if the Christian message is true, or if you believe that the Christian message is true, and there's a day of judgment coming, and you don't tell people about that, what am I supposed to think that means about how you feel about people, right? So there's implications here. If we really love our neighbor, at some point, in some way, we need to point them to the reality of a coming judgment. There's a day coming when every person will stand before the righteous judge of the earth. And those who are not in Christ will not stand and will be cast away for eternity. 
Paul points to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as a divine guarantee of this coming judgment. Now, the resurrection, of course, means more than that. There are other theological implications of what Jesus being raised from the dead means. But in this context, that's what he points to. There's a day of judgment coming by a man whom God has appointed. And by the way, God sealed and settled that this man would be the judge by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead secures the reality there is judgment coming. Now the Epicureans and the Stoics, these poets and philosophers, both rejected the possibility of resurrection. And so just ridiculous to even talk about somebody being raised from the dead. And so it becomes a stumbling block to them. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But if we don't warn people of the judgment that's coming for every person, they will be entirely unprepared to stand before the king on that day. And that is a terrifying prospect. Warn of judgment. But redemption is in there too. I don't know if you caught it. It's subtle, but it's there. Look at verse 30. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why would he command people to repent if his mind was not already made up to judge everybody? If his mind were already made up to just judge and condemn people? The very fact that there's a call to repentance implies that it's not too late. It implies that there is an opportunity to be redeemed. If there were no hope of salvation, God would simply drop the hammer of judgment without warning or explanation, and that would be that, and that would be righteous of God to do. But he warns us. It is merciful of him to warn us. And he calls us to warn others as well. He calls us to repent, which means acknowledge your sinfulness and turn away from it to follow Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9 assures us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is amazing good news. He calls us to repent. He gives us opportunity to repent. And those who repent, he cleanses and redeems and welcomes and restores. The good news of Jesus Christ is there's a day of judgment coming but if you're in him, you don't need to fear it. I have to ask you, have you repented of your sin? Have you believed upon the risen Lord Jesus and asked him to become your savior? As long as you're breathing and have ears to hear, it's not too late. Repent and trust Christ. Turn from lifeless idols to serve the living God. He's actually not far from each of us, said Paul. In fact, the distance between a sinner's heart and the Savior's mercy is only the humility of repentance and belief. Well, Paul's speech to the Areopagus ends rather anticlimactically. Some of them are willing to hear him speak again another day. Come back, we'll listen to you some more. This is interesting. A few of them, it seems, actually believe, right, and, and turn toward him. But most don't change their minds. 
Some of them even mocked him for his message. How ridiculous. Does that mean Paul's evangelism failed? That his message was powerless to save? That he wasted his time? Of course not. Brian Vickers again. He says, Paul's most brilliant piece of apologetic evangelism, which he calls this speech, Paul's most brilliant piece of apologetic evangelism does not end with mass conversion, but in the larger narrative, we know that the numbers, large or small, are determined by God's choosing. And he cites there Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and his providence in bringing his people to himself. So God is accomplishing his purpose. God will bring in his scattered sheep as the good news of the kingdom spreads. Whether you preach the message to deaf ears or people who laugh at you and turn away or not, whatever the response of your audience, God will accomplish his purposes through the preaching of the gospel. Friends, as we hold our God and his honor in highest esteem, as we engage unbelievers in their worldviews and philosophies, inviting them to turn from sin and trust upon the risen Jesus for eternal life. Let's rest with confidence in the sovereign grace of the Savior, believing that the gospel that he has entrusted to us is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for the mercy.